Good evening, my friends. Well, let's take a look tonight. You know, in the past couple weeks, um, I've had some folks say, man, this is depressing. And it is, isn't it? It's usually depressing. I mean, not, you know, church history can be depressing. Tonight isn't. That's the beauty. There's some encouragement within church history. Let's take a look at it a little bit. Let's pray first. Lord, thank you. Thank you for our gathering, for the freedom to be here. Thank you for the history of the church and where we might fit into that. I pray for our time tonight, uh, for the encouragement uh, of what you will give to us. Uh, we can take something away from here and uh, uh, better ourselves to your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we look at the spread of the, the color-coded here, nature. That, uh, how many of you know what that white area is typically called? If you, if you have missions-minded, oriented, if you ever taken a missions class? 1040 window, there you go. That area of the world that's, uh, that's not been evangelized or that, that needs it. Uh, of course, most of that's the Sahara Desert uh, and Muslim in the northern part of, uh, of Africa. But let's take a look at a few things. Uh-oh, we're frozen. Uh, that's latitude and longitude. All right. So we look at uh, church history in an overview form as we've gone through it the last uh, couple of a uh, few months, actually. Time of the Apostles. You see the Roman persecutions, early part of the church, 150 to, to 350, and uh, right before, I should say, right before, about 315, before Constantine came on the scene, the discussion of Trinitarian doctrine, uh, the expansion of Christendom among European barbarians. You remember that lecture, right? Of course you do. Gothic cathedrals and scholasticism, Scholasticism. If somebody asked you about scholasticism now, how many of you go, I think I remember something about that. All of you were completely glazed over during that lecture, I remember. What was that magazine we had? Scholastic something. Scholastic something or other. Yeah, that's about right. Scholastic something or other. Elementary school? Junior scholastics. Junior scholastics, yeah. Little different than scholasticism as a movement. But it's good that you remember that, Charmin. <laughs> it's funny, you know, I'll say something and You'll tune out to what I say after that, but you're stuck on that, and the wheels are turning. And all of a sudden, you just spit it out. You know? <laughs> I love it. Renaissance and the Reformation, we saw that. The religious freedom, Protestant revivals is what we've been looking at the last few weeks here in the United States. So if Jesus doesn't return for the next 500 years, heaven forbid, where will we fit into church history? What will be written about us? Well, one of the things that uh, we are known for in our generation going back to the 1800s, is uh, the greatest movement in our generation would be the expansion of the church, and that would be uh, world missions. Uh, and so we've, we've got that. We'll look a little bit at that tonight and then come back to uh, uh, the next revival in, the, in our country. So let's look at the spread of Christianity over 2,000 years. Uh, it starts in Jerusalem, that little blue dot there. You see it at the middle of the, of the screen. Remember, Jesus was uh, uh, crucified and resurrected there, and he sent out his people, from there, go out and spread the gospel. Take it to all nations. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth, about his death and his resurrection. And so, uh, by A.D. 100, it's moved around towards uh, all around the, the Roman Empire, the known world at that time. Uh, by 451, it's just got a little bit, little bit denser, not a whole lot, in the same area of the world. Uh, it's moved up there, though, however, to uh, it's moving up to what we would say... Um, uh, the British Isles, there it is, by 1058, didn't move all out, I'm going to go back there, 451, look at there, 600 years later, hadn't done a whole lot of movement, has it? Um, it's gotten smaller in 1603, hence the Reformation, and so uh, 
once it moved around and spread a bit, Calvinistic doctrine, it moved, spread to the United States of America, which we've looked at. But most of the planet, most of the land masses are not evangelized by the 1790s. The reformers in world missions, we might wonder why. What was wrong? I mean, were the, those great reformers not missionary-minded? Uh, as the church was related to the state during the Reformation, the reformers did not have a commitment to world missions. Keep in mind, when the church is associated with a state, wherever city you are, wherever you are, what, what denomination takes that city, be it Catholicism, Lutheranism, or Reformed theology, Presbyterianism, everyone is that. There's no need to go around and tell somebody to be this way. We all are, just because church and state are one. So it wouldn't necessarily be in the minds of people to move it around and say, I'm going to go spread the gospel with my neighbor. We're all Presbyterian. If we're all Presbyterian, we're all Calvinistic, we all believe in Jesus. They, not necessarily you and I know that, but everyone knew about it. It would be silly to say, hey, hey can I uh, ask you uh, if you were to die today, uh, are you sure that you would end up in heaven? Or why should God let you into heaven? No one would ask such a question. That, that was, it was implied. You're going to. You live in this town. You're Lutheran. But by the 1800s, there was an explosion of world missions. So men like Luther, Zwingli, Calvin, John Knox, they weren't going around spreading a gospel. They were trying to bring the gospel to their, to their cities and make the whole city that way, governing it from the church and the state's perspective. If you can govern it, then everyone believes it, right? The Second Great Awakening, which we looked at in the last couple of weeks, uh, one factor in the spreading of missions was the Second Great Awakening. Even though it was lousy from a theological perspective, it did have its uh, points. It tweaked the stranglehold of hyper-Calvinism, enabling folks to seek the salvation of others. Calvinism and hyper-Calvinism are two different things. Hyper-Calvinism is, going to, is taking what John Calvin taught and wrote just way too far. Places that Calvin never took it because the Bible doesn't take it that far. But hyper-Calvinism would be something like, look, if there's an elected people, God's going to save who he's going to save. You don't need to go tell anybody. That's hyper-Calvinism. That's anti-Bible, and no real Calvinist believes that. Um, in fact, when you read the Bible, if you ever struggle with the doctrine of election, just note that the greatest missionary who ever lived on this planet, the Apostle Paul, Saul of Tarsus, wrote to us most of what we know about the doctrine of election, and he didn't stop spreading the gospel. So a good Calvinist who understands election is constantly out there telling people about Jesus one way or the other. That's a good thing. But the Second Great Awakening, since it wasn't Calvinistic, made it more Arminian. We need to go tell everyone, and that was a good thing. So it took the stranglehold of hyper-Calvinism off. It empowered lay people to propagate the gospel. So it wasn't just for, say, a preacher or the clergy. It empowered the lay people, because remember, lay people were coming to know Christ, they were jumping around on the ground, they were filled with the Spirit, so-called, many were, some were not, and so they're, out, they're the ones out there preaching the gospel. And the Second Great Awakening encouraged cooperation between different Protestant denominations, coming together to fund missionaries even, and we'll see that as this unfolds, that, uh, that will first come together under William Carey. So also the Western colonialism helped pave the way. I get this from Roy Ledgerwood's book. Uh, some of you have that book. Uh, in the late 1700s and early 1800s, Western powers spread over the world, facilitating travel to any part of the world. So now we're traveling around. We're seeing people. We're seeing the world. We're seeing people that don't know anything about Christ. And this West, idea of Western colonialism, which is, comes to the, the eastern seaboard of this country and moves west, is now moving all over Europe. 
uh, in Asia, Australia. Third factor for this uh, world missions was that the American and French revolutions began to break down the stranglehold of European and state religions. That's what I just said a minute ago. I didn't label them all there. So each one of these colors represents a denomination. So the American and French revolutions, uh, this breaks down these strangleholds where every little section, okay, with well that red section, that's going to be Roman Catholicism. In the green section, you're going to have... Um, uh, that's Scotland and Presbyterianism, Anglicanism. It starts breaking these down, uh, not just to what you are, what denomination you are, but to whether you actually believe in Jesus as your Christ. The involvement of the lay people. The fourth factor is the creation of the proliferation of Protestant missionary societies that collected small sums of money from many individual Christians and pooled the funds to support missionaries, the first being William Carey. Uh, whose ministry lasted 1760, well, he was born in 61, he died in 1834. William Carey, if you ever get yourself a, um, a book on William Carey, one of the greatest stories you'll ever read, in my opinion. Uh, and not because he was a preacher, but because he just did everything. He was just so motivated. Uh, his grandson, the book that I wrote was written either by his grandson or his great-grandson, Paul Carey. Uh, excellent book. It's thick, it's a, it's a long read, but it's an excellent read. Reading about people like this, wonderful, great um, great blessing. A final factor is the challenging example set by a few pioneers who quote-unquote hazarded their lives for Christ. They went on the mission field. They put their lives in danger. They were willing to die. They were willing to give up their life wherever it was. William Carey was just bored out of his mind. Bored out of his mind where he lived. And back then, you know, we, today we try to avoid all the things that we can do. I don't know if you're like me. I mean, I'm, I'm a total dud. And uh, when you're young, you know, you're always looking for something to do. What are we going to do? What are we going to do when you get older? At least when I've gotten older, it's, what are we not going to do? Let's not do, let's not do that. Oh, you're going to do this? I'm not. Dad, would you like to go with us? No. Dad, what are you all doing on Thanksgiving? Nothing. Whatever. No, nothing. And she just laughs, you know, because she's a, he's got a lot of energy. She wants to go. She and Grant got to go, go, go. Fun, fun. There's so much fun out there waiting to be had, and I don't care. But that wasn't the case back then. There wasn't a lot of fun to be had. And so what people lived in a farmhouse, they did what they did. They weren't looking on their phones. They weren't keeping up with world news. There was no TV. There was no radio. There was no podcasts. Imagine that, folks. What did you do? Um, some of these people got busy. And I'll tell you about some of them as we just unfold. So now, William Carey, my favorite. Uh, in 1796, you see he traveled from England all the way down south beyond the southern peninsula of Africa, and he went into India. Uh, that's where he wanted to go. He believed it was the task of Christians in England to take the gospel to the people of the world who have not heard it. That was radical. He proposed the Baptist pastors discuss this at one of their annual meetings. Y'all discuss this. So we would think, hey, someone wants to come up. We want to go to this place. Y'all discuss this at your meeting. That didn't go over well. Imagine that. It did not go over well. Here's what one man said on that board. Dr. Ryland rebuked Carey, saying, Young man, sit down. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he will do it without your aid or mine. You are a miserable enthusiast for asking such a question. What, sir? Can you preach in Arabic, in Persic, in Hindustani, in Bengali, that you think it your duty to send the gospel to the heathens? How about that answer? Uh, Carey wasn't dissuaded. Carey then reviewed the history of missions in the New Testament. He reviewed the spread of Christianity in the early church history. 
and he gave 23 pages of statistics summarizing all the countries of the world and their populations and religions. Not an easy task on that day. Today, what do you do? You Google it. Should have told Carrie, hey, why don't you go home and Google it? I didn't even know what that meant in 2003. Some guy said Google. He was a Secret Service guy, and he said, do you know that you can put your, your name into Google and it pops up your address? I said, uh, what's, what? Google? What's Google? <laughs> now it's just part of our it's a verb. You Google it. There was a day, my friends, uh, some of you young people, when that did not exist, I know that's hard to understand, but it uh, did not. At the meeting the next year, Kerry convinced Dr. Ryland and others they formed a Protestant mission board, the Baptist Missionary Society. So they took monies from each little church and peoples, and they tried to pull it together because there were no wealthy megachurches then. Uh, people lived out in the, on the hills, and they, they, uh, they farmed. They chose to send Carrie and a doctor named John Thomas, who had been to India before as their first missionaries to the country of India. I, I could say so much about this, um, and as the story unfolds, you'll, you'd know why. But you don't just go on a mission. If you're going to be a missionary, be careful who you take with you. Don't take your buddy. Don't necessarily take your spouse. If your spouse isn't called to it, it's not going to go well. Um, John Thomas, he had been there before. Hey, send him with him. And these little churches, they've all come together, formed the mission board, and they're going to send him. Looks like a good deal. Carrie's wife, Dorothy, refused to go and take their four young sons. Hold on one second. All of these were supposed to come in one at a time. I don't know why they've all come, chosen to come in together. His wife, Dorothy, refused to go and, and take their four young sons. Carrie decided he and his oldest son, Felix, would go alone to prepare a place for the family in India. On the day before Carrie was to sail, Dr. Thomas warned Dorothy that she may never see her husband and Felix again. So a compromise was reached, and Dorothy agreed to go if her sister would accompany her. So Dorothy's going to go. Uh, this is... What you do in ministry, by the way, when you go into the mission field now, you go get a plane ticket, you, you fly across the country, wherever country you're going, you go. This is a long sail. It's going to take months to get there where he's going. In June of 1793, they began the half-year voyage to India, never to see England again. They would never see England again. I'll tell you why as that unfolds. But look at that. That map's a little bit better. Long sail. Otherwise, you just get on uh, British Air, and you fly over to India. Not that long of a flight. And you get a free meal. Carrie and the doctor brought enough money to support themselves for two years, hoping to become self-supporting after that. I love that. I love that concept, as opposed to American missionaries spending a year trying to get enough money to go over to a third-world country, live like kings, have people give them money year after year and come back and try to get more money instead of going over there and living, getting your own job over there. Carrie was going, I need money to get started. Two years of money should be fine. And that's what he was trying to do. But Dr. Thomas, who was managing the money, squandered it. And within 10 weeks, they were broke. Later, Carrie discovered that Thomas had creditors in both India and England threatening to throw him in jail for past unpaid debts. Obviously, Carrie and Thomas separated. Be careful who you take. For six years, Carrie worked in India at the indigo plant. He learned the Indian languages, Indian here being people of India, not Native America. He preached to the people of India. He worked on a translation of the Bible for the Indians. He was working. 
During the time Carrie's five, during this time, Carrie's five-year-old son Peter died, and his wife went totally insane. She hated every moment of, moment of it. She loathed being a missionary. She was never into it. She discouraged him, and, and she went completely insane. Um, Carrie would never batted an eye, at least not in the biographies I've read of him. Uh, no doubt difficult to have a five-year-old son dying and your wife, who, who can't speak to you, who's completely crazy. He says, I now have in the press a grammar of the, ter- of the Talinga language and another of that of the six, and have, one, have begun one of the Orissa language. To these I intend in time to add those of the Karnata, the Kashmira, the Nepala, and perhaps the Assam languages. I am now printing a dictionary in, of Bengali, which will be pretty large, he says, for I've got through 256 pages, and I'm not nearly through the first letter. I didn't put it on here, but incidentally, everything that he had done, his grammar, his, his dictionaries, with all these languages, he will end up translating 35 different languages in that area. One day, everything he had caught on fire. All of his paper, all of his translations, his dictionaries he had slaved over, caught fire. Everything burned. He mourned for a day and went back to work. I'd have come home. I'd have dove in the Indian Ocean and said, I'm done, Lord. Stick a fork in me. (laughs) Not this man. That's that's why I say it's one of the greatest things to read. Someone who's called to do this and go forward. It's as if to say, uh, apparently in his mind, apparently those weren't good translations, Lord. I did, as you know, I, I send out commentaries every week. I study all week. I write out everything I do, and I put it together. Uh, used to, before I had Dropbox, I would work on a computer here and a computer at home, and I'd go back and forth. I'd either have to take a flash drive. But when the Dropbox came out, I was using something for Dropbox, it would sync there over here. Well, it didn't sync one time from the church to my house. When I got home, I had an old version, and everything I had done was lost. It was five commentaries, and it was Friday afternoon, and everything I'd worked for that week was over, done. God felt really sorry for me. I mean, I remembered him. And, and I thought, it's five, com- five pages. I can redo it. Apparently, you didn't like it, Lord. So I went back and I redid it. But I think just that man's work, his diligence in this, is just, uh, it still inspires me. Harry helped, Carrie helped translate the Bible into at least 35 different Indian languages from a man who never even went to college. Uh, that first one is Assamese, Bengali, um, yeah, Hindi, Sanskrit. His colleagues during his lifetime translated several more: Awadi, Bengali, Balochi, Ban- Batneri, Batneri Magi, Magahi, Burmese. Look at that. These are these are different languages. They're not just little little tweaks here and there. The man learned these languages. He studied languages. I didn't put it on here, but he said he would get up in the morning, he would read from the Hebrew Bible, he would read from the Greek Bible, he would work on some language, he would go to work, he would come back, he would do some other language, he would lead a Bible study at night, he would do this. He would, he, the man, there was no TV, there was no Astros game to get back to. Uh, this is what happens when you're not taken away from, from good work. Kanauji, Kanada, Kasi, Kankani, Jawanese, Kumaoni. Again, if you can see that, you can see that the script is different, so different in each one. Um, it's not like he was learning Spanish, right? From English. Not that Spanish is easy, but at least you can understand the letters, right? 
if you're English. Yeah, these are all by hand. <laughs> they would have been set and, and done with a printing press, you know, at, at, when, it, when they're published. Uh, Landa, Malvi, Manipuri, uh, Marathi. I know I'm not pronouncing it right. Be, beware, I don't. There it is. It's just one after another. One man. Well, he had colleagues. People, people joined him. It wasn't just him, but he was. Uh, they were missionaries. There wasn't that many, but there were there were a school of them. Yeah, it's by Paul Carey. Uh, it's just called William Carey by Paul Carey. I'll double check that, and uh, you're welcome to buy a copy if you'd like. We charge five dollars a day. Carey lived to be seventy-three, <laughs> and it's a thick book, so it should take. <laughs> Note this, he, he lived to be 73, and he died in 1834 after 41 years in the mission field, not once returning home in furlough. That wasn't his goal. He wasn't there to spend a few years. And I, I don't mean no disrespect to missionaries who do that. I don't. It's just that a missionary who goes across the world to, to spread the gospel is there. That, that's what they do. Uh, they have gone, and that's where they are. You and I, this is where we live. We're either going to stay here and do ministry, where we are, or we're going to go somewhere else and do it. Uh, but going back and forth is, is not necessarily uh, the greatest way to spend your time. His motto was to expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. He did. God blessed that. Uh, and those people came to know Christ as a result of it. Um, the first missionary, at least uh, official one, from the United States was Adoniram Judson in 1812. I believe the man had five wives. Each one died. Uh, that's why he didn't have divorces. wasn't divorced. He was either three or five. I think it was five. A great man. Um, uh, he, was, he met William Carey, and uh, he was with William Carey, and he was with another guy named Luther Rice. You may have heard of Luther Rice. Uh, and then they moved over to Burma, uh, modern-day Myanmar. Uh, he was uh, arrested on occasion. In fact, the way that they uh, kept... Judson in chains was to tie him up by his feet and hang him from the ceiling. In fact, he could lay his torso on the ground and his wife would bring him food. Imagine that all day, every day, for years, uh, American missionary preaching the gospel. These people are, uh, are quite amazing uh, to read their stories. And, and I've just given you one or two slides on each one. It's amazing their stories, their biographies. In Africa, there was Robert Moffat in 1815. Uh, David Livingstone, who went to Africa, 1840. Uh, he's one of the most famous ones of all, David Livingstone. Um, he was lost in the uh, inland of, uh, uh, of Africa. Uh, one man named Stanley was sent to find him. Thought he'd be alive, thought he'd be dead, found him. Stanley came to Christ. Uh, Livingstone was, and the, the old, uh, you know, the, the, the famous phrase that Stanley, <laughs> where he finds Livingstone. You can imagine this in the, in the inners of, uh, of Africa, trying to find uh, what he's looking for and spreading the gospel along. Stanley finds him. Just imagine this guy just all draped with whatever. And uh, Stanley sees him and says, Dr. Livingstone, I presume. <laughs> no one else could look like that. And uh, anyway, amazing story of Dr. Livingstone. David Livingstone, I should say, 1840. Um, went back twice, went back to the United States, came back to Africa, uh, China, uh, J. Hudson Taylor. In 1853, CIM is China Inland Mission. You'll see that. That's still in existence today. Uh, from England over to China. Uh, George Grenfell, Grenfell, I should say, in 1874 into Africa. George Grenfell, 1874, and Alexander Mackey in 1876 in the uh, 
inland of uh, Africa. In South America, there was a missions in the 1900s, Cameron Townsend uh, from the United States. And of course, we know Jim Elliott, who went down there, lost his life. Uh, the extent of Christianity today, this is where the light blue is one in ten, or one in ten to one in a thousand people who have heard the gospel in the light blue. The dark blue is more than one in ten have heard the gospel in these areas, southern Africa, United States, even Greenland there, uh, Australia. Um, it's been there. It doesn't mean people are Christian. We know that, but it's been there. That's where the gospel made its way from Jerusalem, and it's made its way there. China is whited out, but China has heard the gospel as well. Uh, this 1040 window you see right across there, what we call today, and again, that is latitude, longitude in this area of the world. The revival back in the United States after the Second Great Awakening, and what was happening in the 1850s in the United States? What was the main issue? Not quite, but it was slavery because of it. Yeah, that's where you were going, right? Um, if you read any books on the Civil War and pre-Civil pre War United States, um, every, and I'm re currently reading one and, and reading the history of it in, in other books as well, uh, it, it, it fits so seamlessly with our modern abortion debate. I mean, the way people were making slavery, Baptists and Methodists, men and women of God, church-going people, what they were saying to justify slavery, and the oppression of the black man, and the way they got him here, and then for some who, would, who wanted to have the discussion of what to do with them, what to do with them, you know, like they're just something other than God's people, send them back, uh, Liberia, uh, put them back in their, in their country, um, do it slowly, try to do the, it just, it's so horrible, every thought of it, every, uh, even I was reading something today on Thomas Jefferson, and, and one man said, the man was brilliant in mind, but lacking in character, uh, he, he, he was, you know, the men that had the opportunity when they started this country to do something, to fix it before it became a problem. Um, but the, the Layman's Prayer Revival pops up in 1857. It was ended by the Civil War, unfortunately. But uh, had it run its course, perhaps things would have been better. Why another revival? Here's just some reasons. The Second Great Awakening, it ended in 1830. And there were big changes in the United States. That were coming about. Lots of, you know how technology changes things quickly. Today more than ever. Political strife over slavery was everywhere. There were denominational squabbles between Baptists, Methodists, Presbyterians, and all the Methobapterians. The Polk administration had brought prosperity to the country. And when you're prospering, anything goes, right? We don't need God. Uh, there was great land that was annexed to our, what would become our country from the Mexican-American War in 46 to 48. Then 1799 gold rush. Trade, immigration, innovations in transportation and communication, the industrial revolution, and urban development. These are all things people, when people get busy like this, there's good things to do. We kind of, we'll let God go, let him run his course. Uh, that's for religious people, right? But there was a panic and a depression that hit in 1857. Bank failure, bankruptcy, unemployment, those kinds of things when the, when the carpet is pulled out from underneath folks. Somehow or another, they, they inherently know to pray. Uh, makes you see right away what needs to happen in this country, doesn't it? Or what is happening in Israel, maybe more than ever as we speak. In New York City, note that, New York City. Anybody know what New York used to be called? What it was originally before it was New York? New Amsterdam, yeah. 
In New York City, July 1st, 1857, the Fulton Street Dutch Reformed Church hired a businessman to do city missions work, 40-year-old Jeremiah Lamphere, who began a noon prayer meeting on Tuesdays. He handed out thousands of flyers about his upcoming prayer meeting. What happens when you pass out thousands of flyers? Do you get thousands of people? No, never. You're hoping to get one. Have you ever, anyone ever handed out flyers? We handed out, when we started this church, we had either 1,000 or 1,500, and Fairfield was half the size it is now, but we had every house in Fairfield. Black Horse, one person, one family showed up, one family. <laughs> and they became good friends, and then they left. People do. But uh, uh, it's God's church. He spread it around the way it should be. So this man is going to start a prayer meeting. I'll send out flyers, and people will show up in droves. On September 23rd, six people came. On September 30th, 20. On October the 7th, 40. By January 1858, more than 3,000 people were gathering in various locations in and around the city of New York to pray. Here's the picture of the original six who showed up to that prayer meeting. How about that? Let's all get together for a photo. It's what you do when there's only six of you. Let's get a picture. Who's got the iPhone? <laughs> this predates the Kodak One Step. Here's uh, the placard. Of what uh, th This is a very regimented prayer meeting. Prayers and, ex and exhortations, not to exceed five minutes, in order to give all an opportunity. In other words, you can't go off and get off on some crazy prayer episode. You've got to cut it off in five minutes. Not more than two consecutive prayers or exhortations. No controverted points discussed. I like that. That's the way all prayer meetings should be. <laughs> Strict punctuality. It was, it was to be done during the lunch hour. Noon. Noon to one o'clock. It was lay-led. There were no preachers leading it, in other words. The leader having only 10 minutes to begin with a hymn, a prayer, and a scripture reading. So you show up, you got your lunch break, it starts at noon, there's a, a hymn to begin with, there's a short prayer to begin, and a scripture reading. And then it's about praying. Prayer requests were written on slips of paper, they were passed forward, they were read aloud and prayed for. No non-prayerful activity could be submitted. Uh, it had to be things that were worth praying about. And uh, my understanding, I uh, was reading one book today. Actually, I was watching a little YouTube on it uh, where they said anyone who went off and started praying uh, too loud, too much, got a little into the spirit, as some say, uh, someone was supposed to say, it's a prayer meeting. Just to bring them back down to earth. It's a prayer meeting. It's not, it's not you preaching. You ever, you ever hear somebody pray and they start preaching in their prayer? <laughs> or they start praying, they talk like this, you know, like I'm talking to people, but when they pray, King James English becomes their language. Watch out for those folks. At 12.55 sharp, it was a closing hymn because it was done at 1 o'clock. People went back to work. Now, that's a good prayer meeting. And people would say, one of the criticisms was, you're not letting the Spirit move. You see, folks, don't ever confuse the Spirit moving with order. Order. Um, I've been accused of that. Lance, you start at a certain time when you preach, you end at a certain time. How do you let the Spirit move? The Spirit's moving from the time I open to the time I close. And the Spirit shuts it down because it's time to go home. There's a time to begin, there's a time to end. And everyone agrees with that. Sometimes you wish I would end a little bit earlier. Sometimes it should be. Maybe the Spirit's talking to him too long. But it stays within those time frames. I think that's the Spirit. I think outside of that isn't. Some think it's just the opposite. The Layman's Prayer Revival, often called the Fourth Great Awakening. The YMCA was added as a site of prayer 
Then other churches joined in. Later it spread to virtually every major northern city and into Europe. This prayer meeting by one man who started it. Passed out flyers Tuesdays, come for prayer. In Philadelphia, 3,000 prayed at Jane's Hall. In Chicago, 2,000 prayed daily at the Metropolitan Theater. Praying, praying prior to the Civil War, prior to the, the abolition of slavery that did come about. Days of prayer and fasting were set aside in denominations. It was lay-led, non-sectarian. That means no particular, it wasn't associated with any particular denomination. It was to be unemotional. It was publicized and no individual surfaced as its leader. The awakenings of the past, the great awakenings, are associated with typically a leader, a great theologian. This one was not. The one man that got it started just got it started. People showed up. We know very little about that one man other than that he was a businessman. But it was cut short by the Civil War. Uh, maybe needed to be. It was time to uh, answer these prayers. The results of the layman's prayer revival in the United States. Uh, Christ became the topic of conversation. Churches swelled. Pastors were invigorated. Uh, my pastor at Denton Bible Church said one time, he said, don't pray for revival. When there's prayer, that is revival. When people are praying, that is revival. Uh, and pastors invigorated by the revival, of course they would be. Sunday schools and youth ministry began. Go back to, um, these are kind of the, the seeds of youth, uh, young life, youth for Christ, some of these ministries that sprung up later on. And Sunday schools, Sunday schools. Going around town, finding kids that weren't doing anything on Sunday because they weren't in school, picking them up and going and giving them a, a, a church education. The YMCA and the Salvation Army were birthed through this. The China Inland Mission began under J. Hudson Taylor. America was preserved as Christian, at least for a time. Uh, people were, were praying. People believed in Christ. D.L. Moody arrived on the scene. Have you ever heard of D.L. Moody? Dwight, I think it's Lyman Moody. Uh, I'm going to give you a little bit about Moody because some of these people in history, you just trace certain people and you can see what's hap what, what was happening then, even down to the very day, our day, today. Uh, this Layman's Prayer Revival uh, noted is, is perhaps maybe why we're here tonight. D.L. Moody, born in 1837, 1899. His dad died when he was four years old. Mom had nine children. Um, twins were born a month after his daddy died. Note that. Twins were born to a mom of nine children a month after his daddy died. This is the, this is the situation. You don't know, often hear about that. Today, oh my goodness, where's God when it hurts? Back in those days. One of my heroes is John Owen. John Owen lost nine children. He was a voluminous writer, and he never writes about it. Today, you, lose, you have a, a, a miscarriage, and there's a huge book, and you're on the bestseller list. Oh, poor woe is me. Children die. People have miscarriages. They shake their fist at God. Back then, these people came out sideways, and moms went straight back to work. These people were amazing in what they were, and they make us look like a bunch of Fruit Loops or Lucky Charms, whatever pick your. He was a country boy from Massachusetts. He was raised in the Unitarian Church, which is not Christian. One of nine children. Fifth grade education and a shoe salesman. He moved from Northfield, Massachusetts to the big city of Boston to make his fortune selling shoes. Note this guy. Probably never seen him before. His Sunday school teacher was named Mr. Kimball. He sought him out in the back of a shoe store, shared the gospel with him, and converted him at the age of 18. A Sunday school teacher. 
Mr. Kimball. Always remember Mr. Kimball. Tell yourself, remember Mr. Kimball. You're going around one day, just tell yourself, remember Mr. Kimball. Mr. Kimball. One guy shared the gospel with another one guy, and nothing's been the same since. In so doing, one Sunday school teacher literally changed the world with his witness of Christ to Moody. Here's what, what uh, Kimball said about Moody when he met him. I can truly say, and in saying it, I magnify the infinite grace of God as bestowed upon him, that I have seen, that I have seen few persons whose minds were spiritually darker than was his when he came into my Sunday school class. And I think that the committee of the Mount Vernon Church seldom met an applicant for membership, more unlikely ever to become a Christian of clear and decided views of gospel truth, still less to fill any extended sphere of public usefulness. In other words, Moody was a thug. Uh, No one would have ever thought he would be anything. Do you know someone like that? Can you think of someone like that? Don't lose hope. That could be the next D.L. Moody. Moody moved, from, moved to Chicago where he hoped to prosper as a shoe salesman from Boston. While in Chicago, he became superintendent of his own Sunday school in a poor section of Chicago. That's him with the circle around his head. These are old pictures. Isn't that great? They're still preserved. D.L. Moody, young man, standing next to, looks like Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> he became the director of the YMCA in Chicago. Now, the YMCA today is a place to go to work out, drop kids off. Back then, it's the Young Men's Christian Association. It was equivalent to the church. People went there for Christian education. They were trained. It was different then. I tried to tell the people I worked at the YMCA where I used to work that this is supposed to be a Christian organization. It didn't go over well uh, at all. I mean, I made a huge stink at the Conroe YMCA when I worked there, and uh, I'll never forget that. That was a good training. Humbling, too. He continued his Sunday school ministry. He was an excellent fundraiser. He planted a church in Chicago. He was a pioneer for non-denominational churches, of which we are here. He overworked himself, and, when, and while overworking, he said, I'm going to take a vacation to England, best thing he ever did, because there he met George Mueller. In England, he met George Mueller, who ran an orphanage on faith alone, took no money. He didn't, he just prayed. Whatever came, that's what he took. Read a book on George Mueller, folks. You'll, you'll come be in tears. He was a member of, the, of a new denomination called the Plymouth Brethren. He was, this Mueller introduced um, Moody at this point to John Nelson Darby. How many of you ever heard of John Nelson Darby? He's got his own Bible <laughs> Darby is, uh, if you went to Dallas Seminary as I did, Darby is, uh, is, is on a pedestal. Um, not that he's without sin, but uh, uh, Darby. In the history of the church, as we've seen, there was persecution. There, the first order of business in the history of the church is, is Jesus the Christ, right? We're, we're spreading the fact that Jesus is the Christ. The early controversies were about his deity, and hence you've got the, the creeds. And then after that, it's the Trinity, all those Trinitarian uh, discussions. And then the church becomes Christendom after persecution. And so you've got this ecclesiology, which is the study of the church. Ecclesiology is all one with the state. Who's in charge of the church? There's a pope, there's an emperor, there's cardinals later on, there's priests. Who's in charge? So our ecclesiology is what does the Bible say about church government? What goes on in the church? So ecclesiology is coming into to focus. By the time of the Reformation, what's the main thing? The Bible, salvation, soteriology. So it's, Bibli- it's, it's Christology in the beginning, it's Trinitarianism, it's ecclesiology, it's soteriology, the study of salvation during the Reformation. 
And as that unfolds, ecclesiology comes along as well. Now in the 1800s, we start thinking about what? Eschatology. And so you see this, this movement, this unfolding. The revelation was always there. The book of, of God's truth, the revelation of his truth, not just the book of revelation, but the Bible. So it's always been there, but you can see over time in this huge section here in the middle, people didn't even read, didn't even have a Bible. You put it in their hands by the Reformation and the printing press, and with William Tyndale putting a Bible in people's language in their own hands, that goes around. People learn to read. They're, they're studying. They get this. Certain things at certain times come along, and John Nelson Darby will introduce end times theology, our study of eschatology. Moody's over there meeting these men. So in John Nelson Darby, he founded the Plymouth Brethren Church, of which Mueller was a part of. He was a proponent of dispensationalism, premillennialism. Now, I've explained that what that is before, but that's not everyone remembers those things. Dispensationalism is the, the, the view of the Bible. The Bible is God's word. We believe that, that God has worked in differing ways, in different dispensations or eras in the Bible. He worked with Adam and Eve in a different way before they sinned than he did after they sinned. He worked in a different way under Abraham through promise. He worked in a different way through Moses, through the law. He works in a different way through us with the Spirit of God. And when he comes back to the earth, he will work in a different way because he will reign with us. Or we will reign with him, I should say, on the earth. Dispensations. That doesn't make you a dispensationalist to see that. But dispensationalism teaches that, hey, God made promises to Israel. And then later on, Gentiles came to know their Christ. While Israel rejected the Christ, what does God do with the promises he made to Israel? Does he just transfer them all to the church, or is Israel still a part of it? Well, amillennialists will say he got rid of Israel. He replaced them with the church. Or they always say that the church and Israel were always one. Very convoluted and very simple, actually. Uh, whereas we as dispensationalists believe God's promises with, the, with Abraham and his people, the Israelites, are still intact. His promises to the church are there. They're two separate entities. Uh, anyone from Israel who believes in Christ is part of the church. And what God is doing, even with the war in Israel now, that's all part of something, some greater movement that God is doing, whereby the church in Israel will one day both be in Christ. All Israel will be saved. In fact, when you read Romans 11, it says, and when the full number of Gentiles comes in, then all Israel will be saved. This is what he's teaching. He's this, so, in other words, if you're going to say that, you're not conjuring this up going, you know, this sounds good. It's straight from the Bible. And so Darby introduces that. Premillennialism is just the idea that we live in a time prior, hence pre, to the millennial. That means a thousand, to the thousand-year reign of Christ. Christ has not returned. When he returns, it'll be a thousand years. He reigns. We live in a time prior to that. Very Bible-centered uh, man that Moody is now listening to. After meeting Darby, Moody adopted premillennial theology. He went to England, still there, meets the Prince of Preachers. It's another good one to go knock on the door. Hey, I'd like to meet you, sir. He met Spurgeon, the famous Prince of Preachers, who was a Baptist preacher in London. Spurgeon's Calvinistic sermons also influenced Moody's theology. How many of you have heard of C.I. Schofield? Back in America, Moody collaborated with C.I. Schofield in spreading premillennial teachings. Schofield was the editor of the famous Schofield Reference Bible that spread dispensational theology in America. C.I. Schofield, by the way, was the mentor of a man named Charles Ryrie. Some of you have his Bible, right? Ryrie study Bible. Charles Ryrie was a professor. Ryrie was a 
professor at Dallas Seminary, just died recently. In fact, um, his first wife, Anne, is the husband of my very close cousin. So I, I know uh, she's a great lady, uh, and she's still alive. Uh, but Schofield influenced Ryrie, and Ryrie influenced um, generations of us at Dallas Theological Seminary. So that all goes back to Moody's trip over to England when he got burned out. So what does that mean? That means when your pastor is getting tired, send him on a nice cruise somewhere where we'll meet some nice people. That's what it means. I don't, I don't, which is, which is sad, isn't it? Because I have retired, I've retired from airplanes. Like I didn't tell you to listen, Mark. I've retired from airplanes and travel all together. So yeah, I can't go anywhere but my bedroom to the bathroom. Moody, I did. What's that? You're getting ahead of me now. You're stealing my thunder, Sharon. Moody became a famous revival teacher, preacher with his song leader, Ira Sankey. So wherever he would go and preach the gospel, he had a song leader to, to lead the way. There was singing. There was the gospel. He established the Moody Bible Institute in 1889, which is still there today, uh, a conservative Bible school in Chicago. He had a huge influence on Billy Graham, although, the, although Moody had much healthier theology. I, I, Billy Graham's theology is terrible. His ability to share the gospel is good, but um, you're not going to want to read Billy Graham to get your theology. And uh, I hate to burst your bubble, but the man was an ecumenist, and believe everybody, whether you believe in Jesus or not, is going to heaven. So, uh, uh, not Moody, but, but Graham. So, uh, some of you, that takes you by surprise, but uh, it's, it's out there. It's been out there for a long time. Uh, but he could share the gospel, could he not? Uh, Moody influenced him greatly. So, you see this little line of succession. Edward Kimball sharing the gospel with D.L. Moody, who influenced F.B. Meyer, who influenced Wilbur Chapman, and Billy Sunday. Remember Billy Sunday? You don't remember him. You weren't alive then, but... <laughs> Played baseball. He, was, he, he had the record for circling the bases. Uh, uh, Chicago White Sox for uh, uh, years and years. I'm not sure if it's been broken, but uh, faster than the speeding bullet. Uh, to Mordecai Ham, to Billy Graham. It's just one guy sharing the gospel to some thug. You never know, folks. I mean, these are the friends that Jesus is talking about that enter into heaven based upon what we told them, based upon what we leave behind. When you leave behind a nugget of truth, it, it's, it's like a little seed. Just a seed that can go. You never know where it's going to go, how far it's going to go. Has anyone ever come up to you and said, you said something to me that did this and it made me do this? I got to meet again with a gentleman, he's a friend of mine, his name's Charlie. And Charlie was the uh, um, singles pastor to, uh, to me at Cypress Bible Church where uh, Cheryl and I met. Paul Hawkins is there, his wife Leslie. We were there back when Charlie was uh, uh, the uh, singles pastor. Anyway, I ran into him the other day. We were at a little reunion thing and saw Charlie. And, and there was this thing, I got to tell this funny story. When Cheryl and I, right before we got married, she was going to get a, an IRS check back. It's like $1,500 worth. And uh, she said, we, were, we went to dinner together. And she said, we weren't married yet. She said, I'm going to buy uh, this bookshelf that I want. And I said, uh, no, you're not. With, so she said, yeah, yeah. I said, you're not getting it. Well, it's, you know, but it's not getting it. That's the end of that story. And I had my plate, anyway, I put it down, and I looked up, and one of the two times I made her cry before we were married, and there's these huge tears coming down. I said, what? I'm that dumb. What? What did I say? <laughs> anyway, I, we talked about it. I still didn't understand. I talked to Charlie, and Charlie said, Lance, let me tell you something. He said, um, the house is a woman's. That, that, that's 
That belongs to the woman. You're not going to hang your, your posters up in the house. It's the woman's house. When people come over, the woman shows her home. It's her domain. You might be in charge, but it's her domain. It is. And so he gave that to me. And, and that was brilliant. And that's true. And every man in here, if you don't know that, you should know that. Quit, don't You have no say in what goes on inside that house. Decor. And if you do, you're a little bit... So... <laughs> Let her have it. Unless she's just a terrible decorator, she'll probably admit that. Let her have it. Anyway, I passed that on for years to all the counseling because that's a big issue. I want this. I want that. Let her have it, dude. You get the garage. <laughs> if you want to put some paint on the garage floor, do it, but let her have the house. Anyway, the point being is that, and I told him that, I said, the things you told me, that was just one of them, are things that I have passed on in my own ministry to hundreds of people. That they will pass on to others. That's just the way it works. And that's just Charlie. I've had a youth minister I love. My dad. My mom. Everything I know is from my mom. My mom taught me so much. Just about saying thank you. To clean up your mess. Say I'm sorry. Humble yourself. My mother taught. She was amazing. Is. She's still with us. Um, as, as was my dad. They taught me these things. That, that's what happens as parents. But as, as preachers. As Christians. You leave a nugget of truth. It. it it germinates, you know, plants. It does something. Leave your footprint behind. I know it. We, st we still have that bookcase. You come to our house, it's still there. It was, it was a good investment, yeah. $1,500. And I said, we can go to Walmart and get one for 30 but 15 How much was it? Whatever. See, and Charlie told me, he said, Lance, he's always right, too. Let her be right all the time. Okay, she's probably right. Sorry, Linda, she is right. <clears throat> so with regard to kind of overviewing this, when we talk about going out, look at what Jesus said. He said in Matthew 24, 24, he said, In this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world for a witness to all nations, and then the end will come. So the gospel had to be preached to the whole world before the end would come. It doesn't say that the whole world is going to believe it, but the gospel had to make its way around the globe, and then the end will, shall come. Acts 1.8, but you shall receive power when my Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses in both Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. The remotest part of the earth has occurred. Uh, that has happened. In the Great Commission, Jesus said, all authority has been given to me. In heaven and on earth, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, William Carey said that this applied. Uh, the Calvinists of the day, hyper-Calvinists, said no, that was not. So who was Jesus talking to? If you say, well, he's talking to me. Well, if you think he's talking to you specifically, how many of you have gone, therefore, go, 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 because everywhere you are, you've got to go again, if you take it that way. You are making disciples everywhere you go. You are actually baptizing them. Are you doing that? And are you teaching them to observe everything that Jesus commanded? So we've got to be careful when we say this was given to us, because even those that staunchly say absolutely are not doing hardly any of this. Are we going, going, going? So we look at it, this quick grammar lesson for you. From the Greek text is go, is go therefore. You see it up there, go therefore. Uh, this is an aorist imperative verb. 
meanings, and it's actually a, the, the way the tense is written, it doesn't mean go, go, go. It's a past tense, what Arist is. It means having gone, having gone, having gone. It doesn't sound real good in there. Having gone, what does it mean to be having gone? Uh, well, wherever you are, you are, right? Wherever you are, this is where you having gone. This is where you are. Where, if you are today, that's where you having gone to. If you go somewhere else, that's where you having gone. But the absurdity, if, if you continue to translate it, go, 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 is that wherever you go, when you pick this up and read it again, you got to go again. You got to keep going. Well, why'd you stay here? The Bible says to keep going. Paul said, make it your, your ambition to lead what? A quiet life in 2 Thessalonians 3. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. Not go, 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 go. If we translated for the entire church, every generation, we would never stop in any one place. So, having gone, third bullet point, might mean wherever you have gone, or wherever you live or dwell, make disciples where you are. Not baptizing them with water. You could do that, but immersing them in the truth of our triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That's what baptism is. Baptize them. Overload them with the truth. Teaching them to observe all things Jesus commanded. Well, that's your relationship with them. Teaching them, bringing them to a church that does. The Great Commission goes beyond going out a day at the zoo or Herman Park and knocking on doors or wherever and saying, I want to tell you about Jesus. That It's much more than that. That's good, but it's much more than that. The signs of the end of the times when Jesus is going to come. We look at Matthew 24 and Luke 21, and we're coming upon that a little bit in Luke 17 this next Sunday, next couple of Sundays. We see Jesus' resurrection in A.D. 33. There's the time frame that goes down, down to 130. Jerusalem was destroyed in A.D. 70. Uh, Jesus is supposed to return at the end of the age. Well, 130 there, it's, uh, that little squiggly line could mean any amount of time. It's certainly been over 2,000 years or uh, right about. Jerusalem is to be trampled underfoot by Gentiles. Interesting, it has been. Uh, Jews live there now. There are people that want to trample it. There are people that want to take it out of existence as we speak. During that time, the gospel is to be preached to the whole world. So when you look at Jesus' resurrection, which is really, that's on zero, it should be 33. Um, it was destroyed in the first century. Jerusalem is in Jewish control today. Since the UN decree in 1948 and their war for independence. During that time, Jerusalem was trampled underfoot by Gentiles. Jesus will return at the end of the age, and the gospels preached to the whole world. Quick little timelines. If you go to Dallas Seminary, this is what we live to do make lines on a board, draw lines. This, 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 and this. The extent of Christianity today, there it is, 1040 window. And then finally, just some, uh, the way the languages of the Bible, the, putting the Bible in the languages of people. Look, uh, back in the day, it was in Latin and Greek, up to 500. Didn't really increase at all, up to 1500, still in Latin and Greek. No one knows to read the Bible in any other language. Uh, as the reformers come along, as the printing press comes along, more people go out to learn other languages and, and and like William Carey, and translate it. Uh, look at the languages on the left by the thousands. A couple thousand more in progress right now. Up to over 5,000 languages that the Bible has been put into as it's spreading across the globe. That's encouraging. That's something encouraging to see, especially in light of all the discouraging things we've seen. And as you see the gospel where it started, where it went, it's going to make its way west. It's even gone to California. <laughs> 
Didn't do any good there, but it's there. And it's circling its way right back around where it will end up in China and the second coming of Christ once it's done. Lord, thank you. Thank you for allowing us to be a part of what you are doing, the spread of the gospel. I pray that we would be all the more eager to do that. I pray that uh, you would excite us with your word, that we would know your word. Maybe perhaps the the biggest hindrance to good evangelism is, is fear. I pray that you would put your word in us. Fill us with your word. May we hunger and thirst for it. Teach it to us so that we would have no fear. We would take it to the world. And whatever time we have left, may we leave the seeds of, of the gospel. Perhaps they will grow into great trees uh, long after we're gone. Maybe not, but may we be faithful to do it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon by Dr. Lance Waldy, Senior Pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Cypress, Texas. Thank you.